We are here to talk about biblical womanhood this week. We've already done biblical manhood, two weeks on it, all of two weeks on it. So we've covered that sufficiently. If you need a handout, handouts are to my back left there for this morning. I want to thank the pastors and elders once again for the opportunity to stand up here in Sunday school and teach. I should just quickly say it's been a joy to have Adam and Myrel both in the residency, Midwestern's PhD program. It's a joy to see them weekly. Very thankful for these godly men, gifted godly men, so thankful for them. Would you join me in prayer as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we are in a constantly shifting, perennially confusing culture. Many people around us have no idea how to define the things that we are talking about in this Sunday School series. Beyond this particular subject of the sexes, many people around us have no idea how to define reality itself. They don't know you. They have lost all sense of what life is about and what they were created for. Father, we are entering into then an exercise in apprehending reality, and we pray for your blessing as we go back to the sure ground of your word. Your word is solid rock where everything else around us is shifting sand. So we pray that you would give us not simply an ability to comprehend what your word teaches, we pray that you would give us a heart, a desire, affections that thrill at figuring out what your word teaches and then desiring to obey it, to put your truth and your wisdom on living display. That's what we want, Father, not simply to know truth, but to put your wisdom on living display. So help us to do that this morning, we pray, by the power of the Spirit, in the strong name of Christ our Lord and Savior, amen. Many years ago, Simone de Beauvoir, the French existentialist philosopher, said this in her book, The Second Sex, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Now, Beauvoir had her own particular take on what she meant there, but it's important for our study of the Word of God on the issue of womanhood to understand that many people around us would agree today with that sentence. They would have their own background. They might not be a French existentialist, but people around us, as we have talked about in preceding weeks, believe that manly identity and womanly identity alike are something that we ourselves create. There's not something fixed there's not a script to manhood and a script to womanhood. There's not a divine design behind manhood and womanhood. Remember this. There is instead you and me feeling our way through things, figuring out how we want to live. We are encouraged from most every angle in our culture and our society to think of identity as a great construction project, uh, a self-construction project. Your identity is something that you decide for yourself. Um, you do it by looking into your own self, but it's also something that you very much choose. 
And today, in 2018, your identity can shift and change. Uh, you can perceive yourself to be uh, a man one day and then perceive yourself to be a woman the next day. There's increasing confusion, even about age, for example. In recent days, a man in Europe has made public uh, international headlines by saying that he no longer wishes to be identified as his birth age of 69 years of age. He now wants to be 49 years old. And the reason for his change in age, and this is a very 2018 reason, is his online dating profile. He wishes to have, he wishes to enhance, in his view, this is, this is his contention, his online dating profile. So what's he going to do? Well, he's buying into the now common view. He's just making good on the spirit of the age, that identity is not something fixed. Identity is something that you and I create. It's something that we, it's a wave that we surf. And one day we may feel this way, another day we may feel this way, so this man may have the birth age of 69, but hey, your birth characteristics don't determine your identity, right? That's the whole deal if you're tracking with these trends in gender and sexuality. You can have the anatomy, the biology of a, a certain sex, but that doesn't determine your identity. Your identity is based on what you perceive and feel about yourself. So now we're getting an instance of this with the concept of age, and we can guess that this will only continue in days to come. Age is not something fixed, right? Age is something that you perceive. So you can change your age now. That's essentially his contention. You can change your race. People are doing this as well. This made headlines three or four years ago when a woman who, by all accounts, is, was born Caucasian, as we would say today, identified as African-American and, and portrayed herself that way and spoke of herself that way, and it created a major storm in the media. Here again, this woman was merely making good on what our culture teaches us from various angles, that identity is not, again, identity is not something fixed. It's certainly not something determined by God. It's something that you and I either create or ascertain, comprehend within ourselves. Oh, this is my truest self. Now I understand my truest self. Now, let it be said, let it be believed that we all are indeed on a journey, something of an existentialist journey, you could almost say, of learning who God made us to be. This is part of the wonder of being a human person is you learn more even about yourself let alone if you are in a marriage relationship or in a family, you're learning about your spouse or the other people in the family. This is an ongoing, delightful journey. So there is something to be said for figuring things out as you go. And yet we have to understand that the Bible gives us a completely different understanding of identity when we go to the early chapters of the Scripture. We're going to be this morning in Genesis 2 and 3. This is week one of two on womanhood, as we did with manhood. We're starting in Genesis. We're taking a whole week in Genesis, this whole, this whole morning in Genesis, because we want to understand the design of God, and then next week, we'll dive into the rest of the canon on biblical womanhood. So, our first section this morning, our biblical walkthrough. I just want to walk through key principles for womanhood in Genesis 2 and 3. 
the, and I, I'm not going to read an extended chunk, I'm just going to walk through um, this passage. The man, as we saw last week, was placed in the garden, Genesis 2.15, to work it and keep it. So the man, as we have talked about, was placed in the garden both to lead in taking dominion of it, to work the ground, to steward it. So you heard me say that work is not part of the fall. Work was given to humanity before the fall. So work is not the curse. There is, however, a major curse on work, with that, of course, extending first to the man. The man, of course, was not only called to work the garden, but to keep it, to steward it and protect it, watch over it. There's different translations of that phrase in the English translations. They all get at this central idea of keeping and protecting. And as we know, the man was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 4, verse 17, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Interestingly, sometimes we have discussions about God's sovereignty and free will, and there's many interesting questions to ask and even hard matters to sort out. We just need to know that we need to portray the pre-fall situation of Adam rightly. God already assigns numerous limits to human agency and human freedom before the fall. The Lord is the one who dictates the terms that the man enters. And in Genesis 2, the man has nothing to say in terms of negotiation about the way reality is set up, about the way creation is set up, about how uh, the covenant, if you want to use this language in Genesis 2, is going to work. He doesn't, he doesn't negotiate with God. He's not understood as a partner in terms, God having his say and then the man having his say. The Lord dictates reality to the man. These are your limits. And the Lord shows Adam, and by extension Eve, she's coming in just a second, that they have limits. We are not infinite beings as God is. We have clearly prescribed limitations on our humanity. A fancy word philosophers use to capture this concept is that of contingency. God is an independent being. He has the attribute theologians sum it up as aseity, life in himself. We do not have life in ourselves. We do not generate ourselves. God created us. We are dependent beings, limited beings, contingent beings, and we are such from the beginning. So that is already, before you even dive into what manhood is or what womanhood is, that is already something very important to understand as a human person. It goes against the spirit of the age. It goes against every graduation message you've ever heard, yes, there's no, there's no weights on your wings. You can soar as high as you would like, or whatever rhetoric you, know, you hear at graduation ceremonies, yes. Um, in truth, even before the fall, humanity has limitations. So, mankind is not born with a death sentence at this point, don't mishear me, and yet even before the fall, humanity hears from the Lord, and the Lord sets out, marks out just how far the human person can go. So that's very important for us to note, even as we're, even as we're sort of doing pre-diving in work to the concept of identity. Friends, in your workplace, in your junior high, high school, college or university setting, whatever it may be, already we have a different conception of what it means to be human, profoundly different conception of what it means to be human 
than a secular person who doesn't believe in divine design, doesn't believe in the will of God, certainly doesn't believe in Genesis 2 as actual scripture, recording actual history, as I think we are called to do. We hear two very important principles in verse 18 that frame further our understanding of the sexes. Verse 18, we learn that it is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. The first element of creation that is said to have some sort of deficiency, which is really interesting in terms of understanding Eden rightly. Eden, of course, is not what heaven and the new heavens and new earth will be. Eden is a realm that allows humanity the possibility of falling away from God, isn't it? The possibility of there being something that is not good. In fact, there is something that is not good, whereas in the age to come, in eternity to come, there will be no possibility of anything being not good. God will have made all things right. He will have done all things well, and we will be in our home soon and very soon. Before you and I know it, all this madness and chaos will cease, and we will be home with God. Sometimes people say, side note, don't be so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. You should be, you should be so heavenly-minded, you're some earthly good. That's how I would say it. You need to think about heaven. You need to think about eternity coming. It will give you tremendous hope in the midst of what is swirling around us every single day in this crazy, fallen, cursed world. So it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam is not called fundamentally by the Lord to stay in his state. And secondly, the Lord accordingly sees the need to make a helper fit for him, an azer kenegdo in the Hebrew, a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. Uh, some translations have it. In other words, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, they are designed by God. God made them himself, we know from Genesis 1, and yet they do not correspond to him. They do not fit him. This is an interesting point because uh, I don't want to get too impolite here at 8.50 on a Sunday morning, but another challenge that is going to be coming our way in this secularizing culture in the West, more broadly, not just America, but the West, is going to be the issue of bestiality. It already is there if you are paying attention culturally, societally, as is pedophilia. Uh, pedophilia, by the way, has been rebranded. Everybody rebrands today in a positive direction. So, uh, pedophiles do not call themselves pedophiles. They call themselves minor attracted persons or non-offending minor attracted persons. So, you're, you're not a pedophile if you're sexually drawn to little children. You're a minor attracted person. And please note, it is a secular society that gives shelter to a whole range of ungodly, perverse, evil desires and behaviors. It is not the Christian church that has sheltered those behaviors. It is not a Christian-influenced society, historically, that has given shelter to these behaviors and these perversities. It is a secular culture and society that has turned its back on uh, any understanding, any linkage to the Christian witness. So we cannot give any ground, of course, to bestiality. We cannot approve it in any form. We cannot make it a neutral category. We have to see that Genesis 2.18 is telling us that there is a fittedness between the man and the woman that, that pleases God, that comes from his mind alone. 
Now, the woman is called the helper here, and I have more comments on that as we go, but we need to note that this term helper is in no way a derogatory term. It might be help meet in your translation. It might be something, something else. It's not in any way a subservient term, a bad term. In fact, God himself will take on this term in the Old Testament. One place, Deuteronomy 33, 26 and 29, the Lord will call himself the helper, the azare of his people. So to be a helper is, is not sort of like a subhuman status that Christianity has tagged to women. Being a helper is something that God himself is uh, for his people. So what a sake, whatever this role is, whatever, whatever helper means, whatever the Bible is going to teach about it, however old and new covenant are, are going to fill out our understanding of biblical womanhood and, and helperness, we have to know if we're making this connection between the woman's status, the woman's identity, and even what God himself will call himself, we have to know this is a sacred role. This is not a negative identity. This is not because God really is excited about creating the man, but isn't as excited about creating the woman. This is the identity he gives to the woman that he himself will take on in relation to his covenant people. He will be helper of his people. This is not to say he's a feminine identity or something like this. He does not at any point in Scripture. He has a masculine identity, though he does not have a body. It is to say that this this is an enchanted status. This is a beautiful thing. People around us may not confess this. People outside the church may not believe this. They may not want to hear this. They may want to play it down even in Christian circles and talk about what this doesn't mean as opposed to what it actually does mean. Praise God that we are in a church that is comfortable not merely sort of getting a little bit within range of biblical truth, but actually wants to just understand what the Bible is saying and, and obey God's design. It's a beautiful design. So we see these two things here. We know, moving on to verse 19, that the Lord makes every creature out of the ground, the text says, Genesis 2:19, but not the woman. The creatures that are swirling around Adam are made out of the ground, but as we will see in successive verses, the woman is not made from the ground. Uh, the woman is made from the man. Here we see in verses 21 and 22, the Lord linking the woman and the man. Specifically, we see the Lord showing both the headship of the man, he is made first, she is made from his body, uh, and we see the bond between the first couple. Nothing, nothing is more intimate than making another human being from your own body. That is ultimate intimacy. That is, that is too beautiful even to capture in words. You shouldn't understand this in terms of like a science class in high school, you know, kind of very technical. Well, let me take this element here, said the Lord, and then make this element into the woman, and this is all very chemical. No, we should understand this as a, as a work of art. The Lord is, is making the woman from the man's body, as I say, as a sign of his headship, but also as a sign of the bond between the two. This is this is beautiful. Whenever, whenever the man looks at his wife, he is supposed to think, this woman, this beautiful creature was made from my own flesh. I mean, what is the Lord teaching the man about his role in terms of this marriage relationship? He's, he's teaching the man to highly value, even exult in 
this woman, find tremendous joy and satisfaction in her. And that is exactly how the man responds in Genesis 2, 23. He names the woman. The Lord brings the woman to the man to see what he would call her. And so, Adam has the responsibility of naming her, which is noteworthy. The Lord himself does not name the woman. That's probably what we would expect, that the Lord would name this woman and then tell Adam, tell the first man what the name is, because it's the Lord. I mean, it's his prerogative. But in fact, the Lord further signals the man's leadership and what the New Testament will call headship by having him name her and giving him that responsibility. She is Isha, woman made from Ish, man. And the man does not do this again in a kind of very technical, sober way. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is, again, to use this language, exulting in this womanly creation. The birds, the beasts, the serpents, the squirrels, uh, the salamanders, choose your beast or sea creature, the salmon, they are not fit for him. They are not bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. God has made all the living creatures, so we see that Genesis 1 and 2 are claiming the creation as God-made, not derived from chance, randomness, and gases that happen to collide. No, all the creation in a word is enchanted, and yet, and yet, this is the only being, the only God-made creature fit for the man. This is a beautiful picture. It's a holy picture, and we should not miss it. As we have observed in earlier sessions, the blueprint for the human race is marriage. The good design of God for humanity is marriage. This is not because God looks down on single people. Single people have a lesser status. Jesus Christ, the God-man, will be in natural terms a single man. If ever there was a sign that singleness should not be viewed as a lesser state it would be the Son of God. That would be exhibit A in our points we would make along those lines. So, let that be said. Marriage is seen in such high terms. No, not because of that, not because of looking down on anyone else. Marriage is portrayed here in Genesis 2 in such exalted terms because this is a major part of the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, filling the earth, multiplying mankind made in the image of God, filling the earth with little image bearers. That's essentially what Adam and Eve are called to do. They are called to give God glory by uniting in holy matrimony in marriage, given the gift of sex, and they are called to procreate and fill as God allows. Of course, this is pre-fall. We know there are many uh, challenges that married couples face in a post-fall world, and yet this is fundamentally the good design of God. The Lord wants His first image bearers, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's not indifferent toward that. He doesn't recommend that as a possible option to the man or woman. That is a crucial part of how the first couple is called, and by extension, the human race, by extension, all who will follow God in faith and obedience. That is a crucial part of how we glorify God. So many of us are looking for adventure and excitement and fulfillment, and honestly, for both men and women, 
Our culture tells us that work will do that. Work is really what we need. You know, once we get that perfect job, we will be lastingly satisfied and lastingly happy. And so the challenge with our life is to find the perfect job, very similar interestingly in the realm of marriage, to find the perfect mate. The concept of perfection very much plays on us today. And yet, you go back to basics. You go back to Genesis 2, and it seems like, at least for most of us, a huge part of the work that is going to be most meaningful and most lasting for us is going to be playing our tiny little part in procreation and child-raising and Lord-willing Uh, bringing into the kingdom new sons and daughters, our own sons and daughters, as God works by grace through faith to save our children. Said less um, strangely, God desires that many of us would marry and have children and that this would be the lasting work of our lives. Children and the gift of the womb are not seen in Genesis 2 nor in any part of the Scripture as an imposition. Uh, They're not seen as a problem. In in the Psalms, in Psalm 127, Psalm 139, they're going to be called a gift from the Lord, a heritage from God. So, that's the major adventure, honestly, for most of us. Some people are called to this dude out in the West who ascended uh, like Yosemite or he ascended some uh, major mountain. He does this without any ropes, any harnesses. You can tell I'm very clued into the climbing world here. Um, so, that's his, that's his excitement. Free climb, solo climb as uh, my packet unclimbs and escapes, sought to escape. But I have, I have subdued it. I have taken dominion of it. <laughs> Hashtag bad theology jokes. Okay. We are losing the train here. Okay, um, so, so that's not the adventure for most of us. You know, I can't solo climb a 5,000-foot rock face. What I can do and what most of us, I think, are called to do is, as God gives us the gift of children, certainly marriage before that, to see our major life's work, our adventure, in a kind of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien way, as raising children to know the Lord, creating a happy family. If you don't hear it from anyone else, at least hear it from me, at least hear it from this church, that that is an immensely meaningful project and work, even if no one ever knows your name in the broader field, vocation that you're involved in. If all you do, so-called, is play your role in building a family, if God calls you to this, you're not called to signals, if you're called to marriage, if you're called to family building. That is an immensely meaningful and immensely doxological work. Every second of it matters. Every second of this call matters. Every second, as we've talked about as a man, of being a father, a husband, a godly husband, matters. Every second of being a godly mother, a godly woman, matters. Even the anonymous moments, even the moments when nobody sees you, especially those moments Martin Luther argued in his commentaries that those are the moments that most glorified 
God. The most anonymous, most humble, roughest moments in some cases. The nights when you are totally exhausted and yet you, you get up out of bed in the cold to feed your child, women. The moments when you are changing diapers. The moments when you are shaping little hearts and minds. If no one else sets it in this culture and society. Those are some of the moments. On the last day, when God, I believe, will most reward you, the, the, the quietest moments, the most humble moments, the most anonymous moments, God is not looking for superstars among men and women. Sometimes he raises somebody up to untold, unusual influence. Praise God for that. We give thanks for that. We pray for those people in those positions. But most of us are called to quiet faithfulness and ordinary godliness. But do not mishear me. If it is according to God's design, all of those moments matter. They matter more than you know. They matter more than the culture tells you. They matter more even sometimes than the Christian church recognizes. The Lord loves marriage, every minute of it. The Lord loves life, bringing life into the world, whether naturally in your family or adopting. The Lord loves that. The Lord loves children. The Lord loves children. It's his idea. It's Satan's idea to destroy the fruit of the womb, to cause women to target the fruit of their womb, to destroy it, to kill it for whatever reason. Whatever psychological reason or social reason is behind that, that is not God's work. That is the work of the devil. God's work is to cause us to love children, to welcome them, to create one flesh. Verse 24, that's what the men and the women are called to do. They join together in holy union, and they create one flesh. They come together as one flesh, and it creates children who actually are, this is amazing that this is the way things are, this is why it's so remarkable to learn this as, uh, I don't know, 12-year-old or 13-year-old or whatever age your dad or mom takes you out and you have the awkward conversation. Perhaps you remember that moment for you yourself. I recall seeing one young guy, uh, in a family uh, I know, uh, having, he was having the talk with, his, uh, with one of his parents, and uh, after, after that happened, literally just went outside and laid on the ground. <laughs> he was so, like, overwhelmed and knocked out by what he had just, he was from a Christian family, you know, innocent kid, didn't know really about this stuff, starting to put it together probably, didn't really know about it, and then he was just, it was too much, man. He couldn't even stand up. He was just on his back like for like 30 minutes, like, whoa, bro, I, what just happened? Well, we know that this is a wonder and a mystery and a miracle that two become one flesh. How does this play out? It plays out by a man taking leadership. He leaves his father and mother. He holds fast to one wife. They become one flesh. There is tremendous intimacy then in this action. And this is a reflection of the love that we find in the Trinity. The triune God, we know, dwells together in happy and holy fellowship. And he desires that his creation do the same. So even when we are talking about the family, we should see it as a little picture of the holy family, the Godhead. A woman, therefore, according to Genesis 24, 2, 24, and 25, chapter 2 here in Genesis, a woman does not have the responsibility to win a man's hand in marriage. Uh, that's the man's responsibility. So already we're seeing different cues, even where the Scripture is not explicitly spelling this out like a handbook for your new gadget. That's not exactly how the Bible works, right? On any subject, 
And, and that's certainly not how it works here. God does not give us, you know, a 10-page handout with all the breakdowns and all the technical explanations. Interestingly, God chooses to give us this narrative in Genesis 2, but there are clues in the narrative. It's not the man who is called, it's not the woman, excuse me, who is called to leave father and mother. It is the man who is called. So we're learning here about the disposition of the woman. Interestingly, even before the fall, she is, she's to wait on a man leaving father and mother and seeking to win her hand. Again, not the way we're taught today necessarily. We're seeing in Genesis 2 what the woman's, the godly woman's disposition looks like. She doesn't have the same role as the man here. Again, always having to work against defeater beliefs, uh, sadly. This is not because the Lord doesn't like women. It's because the Lord wants men to, to grow up and to mature and to take responsibility and to step forward in courage. So the Lord is teaching men, even in this particular institution, the beginning of marriage, He wants the man to set out in courage to win a woman's hand. And that may be the most terrifying thing most men ever do, to try to win a woman's hand in marriage. It's scary. It's a scary thing. At least you can tell it was for me here. I'm clearly confessing this before you. Because you have to risk. You have to put yourself out there, right? You have to risk rejection, don't you? Even some of you have been married for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years. Can you recall the moments when you were trying to win her hand and you weren't sure? They were interesting moments. Yes, perhaps you can talk about that at lunch and reminisce about it all. But this is the good plan of God. It's God's design to propel, to push a man out to win a godly woman's heart. There's tremendous goodness in this union as the chapter closes, Genesis 2. We see that the Lord designs sex, not mankind. The first couple, Adam and Eve, in verse 25, are naked and are not ashamed. So, though it can be awkward to talk about these things, we know that there is no shame in God's good design. You know that where there is shame? There is shame outside of God's design. There is tremendous shame, we, we know this, that results from following the lusts of the flesh, whatever they may be. If they are not, if our lusts are not found in the covenant of marriage, they do not glorify the Lord. And even those of us who are married have to be very careful, self-controlled with our sexual desire, don't we? All of us, every last one of us, man and woman alike. There is great shame that will result if you disobey God's design and you seek sexual pleasure outside of the covenant of marriage. That shame, people around you will tell you, is not real shame. It's just false guilt. And so, you know, you should go to therapy or you should take pills or you should just lose yourself in sin and just give in to the will of the flesh. But that shame will never go away. You see, shame, if it's, if it's generated by genuine sin, not something false, but if you're actually sinning against the will of God, the Scripture, and then you're feeling shame, shame is actually a grace to you. It's actually God's common grace to you that you would feel shame. It's shame if we mistreat our spouse that helps open our eyes to our sin. We actually, in a certain way, rightly understood give thanks that God gave us a conscience that if we are engaging in any way in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, 
God would give us guilt, and God would give us shame because we deserve it, contra what our culture tells us. There is no shame, though, in God's plan. And so that's why we're trying to train our children toward marriage. We're not encouraging them, as I've said in previous weeks, to enter into kind of pre-marriage marriages, you know, the, high, the, the whole like junior high kind of dating relationship, and then a more serious long-term high school relationship, and then maybe a college relationship or two, and then eventually leading into perhaps a marriage. We are trying to train our kids to be holy and pure by God's grace. None of us are perfect, but even in, in terms of the will and the mind, we're trying to train them to be holy and pure by the grace of God such that marriage will be a joy to enter into. And it won't have been the, the fifth time they've sampled deeply a relationship, but it will be a holy thing for them, that this will be a, a joyful thing that they enter and that there won't be shame. People all around us are drowning in shame, and it's genuine shame. It's shame that comes from sin. Friends, let that not be us. Let that not be us. Let's, let's pray that we would be righteous and pure, whether we're single and very young and not yet ready for marriage, or whether we are married. Let us pray that we would be righteous and pure by the very power of God in us. Let's make one more observation about womanhood before we sum up from Genesis 3.16. Just have to parachute into Genesis 3.16 to get one final principle to talk about this morning. This text comes on the heels, of course, of the serpent approaching the woman, the man not watching over the garden as was his call, and then the woman eating the forbidden fruit and giving it to her husband to eat. So in Genesis 3.16, the Lord says this, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What is happening here in Genesis 3.16? Very quickly, the woman's primary role, her primary call, vocation, is cursed here. She'll have pain and childbearing. God didn't give her a womb in the curse. She already had a womb. This is already His good design that she would bear children as, as He would allow, and yet now her realm, her primary vocation is cursed. And now, furthermore, she's going to vie, fight for leadership of the home. She's, she's going to have desires that are contrary to her husband. In other words, there's going to be a battle for leadership and headship in the home. The woman is not going to respond to his leadership in a submissive fashion to draft off of Ephesians 5. Instead, she's going to, to battle him. She's going to fight him. And he, in contrast, is going to seek to dominate her. That's what the Lord is saying here in Genesis 3.16. The Lord is not teaching that this is a good thing on either side, that the woman's going to behave this way or that the man is going to behave this way. This is the curse. This is the fall. This is playing out all around us and has been playing out in marriages and families since this very moment, a battle for leadership in the home and the man not caring for his wife well, as we have talked about previously. It's fascinating to me to listen to advice on Christian radio or something, something about marriage, uh, because so infrequently will these kind of dynamics be discussed. But if you want to begin working toward a godly, God-honoring, happy, healthy marriage, you have to know these things first, to know these things first. You have to know that fundamentally we are all sinners and that our sin in the context of man-woman relationship is going to come out in this way. 
This is, this is the terrible pattern that is the result of uh, sinning against God. So this speaks to the post-fall temptation of women. Again, we're zeroing in on women this week. This is the urging of modern feminism. Today, women are encouraged to rule over men. They're encouraged to, to lean in and step up and be the one in the relationship that leads. And uh, that desire uh, roots in the fall. That's not a righteous desire. That's not to say that a woman should not have an interest in the health of her home and should not want her husband to be godly and these sorts of, th- sorts of things. That's not what we're saying. We are saying that in the biblical pattern, the man is to be seen as the head of his wife, and, he's, and she's to welcome and take joy in his leadership. That's going to be an ongoing project, as I'll say in a minute, because there's no perfect man out there, and yet this is, this is the call. We, we don't want the sexes to see themselves in a battle for leadership. Uh, we want to return to the good design of God. Four observations from Genesis 2 and 3, rapid-fire fashion. Number one, you may have heard this before from me, the sexes are made by God. The sexes are made by God. I have said this before. I repeat it again on purpose because I want you to see that womanhood, like manhood, is not our invention. It's it's not Western culture's invention. God is the one who creates this thing called womanhood. He desired that there would be womanliness. He desired that he would have glory in the life of a woman. It's, it's his desire. We understand then that we have, we have unity and diversity as Christians. God creates one human race, image bearers all, but he creates diversity, doesn't he? The man and the woman. We have a foundation for understanding unity and diversity. This, of course, grounds most significantly in the Trinity. Unity, one God, in diversity, three persons, but it's found also in the natural world as well. Our culture denies that there is an essence of womanhood, that there's something fixed to womanhood, but we do not have that option because the sexes are made by God. Secondly, the woman's identity is that of a helper, that of a helper, an azair. That's the the first thing, excuse me, we learn about the woman. This does not mean that every woman is going to be married. It does not mean that every woman should submit to every man. It does mean that there is a beautiful symmetry in the natures of man and woman. The essence of womanhood is found here. That's why I'm in Genesis 2 and 3 this week and not jumping to other texts as we will do next week. It's because the essence of womanhood is here. The woman fundamentally by the design of God, is a helper in a way that the man is not. It's not to say the man doesn't help his woman. It is to say that the woman, per her identity, per the description of Yahweh from the beginning, identifies the woman as a helper. So we conclude, just as the man is called to be a worker and protector and leader, so the woman is called to be a helper and a submissive partner and as God allows, the very bearer of life. Now, not every man takes on these roles in the context of marriage and children. Not every woman takes on these roles in the context of marriage and children. But this is the Bible's first and definitive word on manhood and womanhood alike. So, I I just want to encourage women to 
find joy in this identity, the identity of a helper, which, as I say, has first reference to the marriage relationship, and yet we also see something crucial about womanly identity here. There's something beautiful here. The helper is not a lesser designation. When God calls himself a helper, he is indicating that he alone can do things for Israel that Israel cannot do for itself. So far from a chauvinistic presentation of womanhood, the Bible is actually showing that womanhood has major strengths to offer. A home, a marriage, anything beyond that. A woman brings things to the table that the man does not. And specifically, of course, as a matter of first application, if there is no woman, then there can be no procreation. There can be no multiplication of image bearers. But nonetheless, we see this as a crucial matter. If you want to understand what God desires and designs a woman to be, you have to understand that this is first and foremost, this is front and central. Helper. Helper does not mean unthinking, ungifted, untalented, having no opinions, these sorts of things, having no wisdom. To the contrary, godly men seeking out a helper are seeking a woman who is first and foremost righteous, she's godly, she's holy, and then whatever endowment of gifts God has given her, that man is, is joyful to find. Sometimes there's a stereotype that, you know, a, a biblical man would want a woman, you know, to be in the kitchen, this sort of thing, you know, doing nothing but staying in there all day. It, nothing could be further from the truth. A godly man wants a woman who is, in his view, uh, gifted in different ways, pushes him on to godliness, uses her own gifts and her call from God. He sees her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. So when I was looking for a wife, I didn't pray for a moderately intelligent woman, a moderately holy woman. I prayed for a righteous, godly, beautiful woman. I did. I'll confess it up here. And some of you have prayed that same prayer in this room. That's the kind of woman you're praying for. You're praying for a woman of gifting and ability who will help you. So far from macho-ness, the Bible teaches men, at least those called to marriage, that they need help in the pre-fall state. They need help. As Will Smith might say, professional help. So let that be said. There's so much more to say on these points. Let us never buy the lie that biblical womanhood means inferiority from the beginning. In Genesis 2, it does not mean that. It means the opposite. It means that the woman is made by God and gifted in very specific, very wonderful ways to bless the man and create a God-honoring home. Third, we are learning in contrast to this beautiful vision, this beautiful design, both counterfeit manhood and counterfeit counterfeit womanhood today. We've discussed the manhood issues. Secular womanhood is marked by seeking to rule over men, aborting the fruit of the womb, and not embracing a gracious womanly demeanor. Women are encouraged to see themselves as no different than men today. But I want you to see from the Bible that a godly woman has great agency great dignity, and great worth. And any woman who is embracing femininity in general is embracing the design of God. And any woman who especially embraces biblical femininity 
It's glorifying and pleasing God. That is true whether there is a ring on her finger or not. You are not a biblical woman when you get married. Lord willing, in the church, we are training our girls to be biblical women. From an early age, we're training them differently than we're training our boys. It's not to say there's not overlap. There is overlap. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not tackling uh, my little girls in the basement, you know? I'm happy if they want to play different games. I'm happy to play. We play all sorts of games uh, when it's dad time in the basement. Often the pre, pre-dinner hours, shall we say, are vital hours for dad to have time with kids. My son, as, as you've heard in previous weeks, very much does need to tackle me. He's got a thousand percent more testosterone than those little girls. He's got physical aggression to work out, and, uh, and so we work it out. But I'm raising my girls to be feminine. I'm raising my girls to be women. I'm raising my girls with my wife, with Bethany, Lord willing. We're praying daily for these children to be godly in every way, a godly man and two godly girls. So we want our daughters to see the beauty of womanhood, of being distinct from a man. That is, that is a biblical principle. It's the joy of a godly woman, if God leads in this way, to follow a godly man, support his leadership, strengthen him in his leadership, not battle him or undermine him, and be the bearer and nurturer of life. That does not mean that a A godly woman doesn't have a say in things. You've heard me say in previous weeks that I try, I think I I should solicit my wife's wisdom regularly in our marriage. I think I'd be foolish not to do that. It does mean, though, that it's the joy of a uniquely biblical, Christ-captivated, God-honoring woman to follow a godly man, support his leadership, seek to strengthen him as a leader, not undermine him, as a leader, and then as God allows to be the bearer and nurturer of life. Now, this can even take place, not so much in the context of marriage directly in terms of submission or something like this, but a, a godly woman, even outside of marriage, can have this kind of demeanor, can, can have a gracious, womanly demeanor, a gentle and quiet spirit, as we'll talk about next week, can be a a nurturer of life in all sorts of ways, can strengthen godly men as as she's given opportunity in terms of friendship and the context of the church and even secular spheres. So these are not things that click in on your wedding day alone. These are things, Lord willing, that we're training our girls to be and that we're training women to be in the context of the church. So fourth and finally, we want to do two things today. We want to call women to value marriage in a culture that doesn't value marriage, that's what I'm after there. And we want to help women navigate the call of God on their lives. So, under this point, we tend to urge men to reject a selfish, youthful vision of life. We must call men to that afresh. Not in a kind of red-faced, get-off-my-lawn sort of way, but in a godly, righteous, loving way. We have to train young men to reject selfishness and to not stay a perpetual boy. We have to call our boys to that. I was in Denver this past week for the Evangelical Theological Society. I presented a paper at ETS on pneumatology, on the doctrine of the Spirit. And at one point I went to dinner at a uh, 
they'd call it a hipster, hipster restaurant probably, and it was ping pong hour at the restaurant. And so there were like 12 different tables of ping pong and most of the people in the room were in their 20s and 30s, but it felt like we were in junior high all over again. And I just, I'm, I'm pro ping pong for the record. Um, um, could we have a ping pong table out in the lobby? Okay, we'll, we'll consider, that, that'll be under consideration in future weeks. Um, under, under rejection, probably. I dig Do we have one here? Downstairs. Downstairs. Okay, see, I, I don't have kids in the uh, junior high youth group yet, as you can tell. Things to come. Ping pong hour. I just realized, I looked around and I just felt like, what, what am I, we're not in junior high. Junior high was 15 years ago, it's 20 years ago. It's fine to enjoy a game or something like this, but the feel of the place, and I, I enjoy hipster spots. They have very good food on, on average, I should point that out. <laughs> Better in some cases than non-hipster places. But it just felt so youthful and, and, and like we were staying in junior high. We are called in the church to have a doctrine of maturity and growing up, acting like men. Paul says that once he thought as a child, he reasoned as a child, he behaved as a child, but then he understood the upward call that is in Christ, and he wanted to be a man. Today, our culture, man and woman alike, encourages us to want to be a boy or a girl. The Bible encourages us to want to be a man or a woman, to want to mature to want to grow up. That doesn't mean we don't have fun. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy life, good food, ping pong, basketball. Choose your enjoyment. It does mean, though, that all of this is blanketed under maturity, growing up, not being a boy or a man, leaving boyhood behind, leaving girlhood behind. So we have to make the same call to women. Women can avoid marriage just as men can. Typically, men come in for the critique today, but women can do the same thing. I think both sexes are tempted. I'm, I'm talking about those who are called to the institution of marriage, not those who are called to singleness. I think women today are tempted to look for the perfect man, and nothing else will suffice. This is true even in the Christian church. There's only one problem. There's just one tiny, tiny problem. There's no perfect man, save one, Christ Jesus. And you can't marry him in natural terms, just to make that very clear. There's no perfect man outside of Christ. There's only imperfect men. It can be challenging, I think, in this day and age when men and women alike have lost the script for marriage, at least in the broader culture. But we want to just help godly women see that there, there is no perfect man to marry. And if there is a godly man before you, you are called to marriage yourself. There's a godly man before you who wants to lead you well who wants to build a family if God allows to know the Lord, who wants to, to serve the family well by leading, protecting, and providing, that is, that's not something to think lightly about. Some women are not called to marriage, 1 Corinthians 7, so we want to help them figure out what godly womanhood looks like. For many, it's going to look like building a vocation, being a meaningful member of the local church, and serving Christ in all sorts of joyful ways. There's gray areas there to discuss. There's all sorts of freedom that they're going to encounter, but fundamentally, that's what it's going to look like. It's also going to mean, in that context, that you're always a biblical woman. You're never not a biblical woman. You don't become a biblical woman, as I've been at pains to say, if you get married. This is not lesser womanhood. This is full-fledged Christian womanhood. But we, we make it clear afresh that many women are called to marriage. In all this, to conclude, we want to handle these matters with care 
and love and wisdom. We want to know that there are many challenges. We want to know that people have not necessarily been trained in these things. And these can be hard words, even from Genesis 2 and 3, to to hear if you're not from a background where these things have been taught. Certainly our culture is teaching us the opposite. It's certainly not teaching us in many cases that a woman is born a woman. Uh, we, We hear that we become a man or a woman today by choosing our identity, but that is not the good design of God.